Hello from Austin and welcome to the one year anniversary of the National Security Law Podcast, also known as episode number 55. I mean, I know that's not 52 weeks, Steve, but we had a couple of extra episodes during the Comey uh, madness several months ago. It was such a special year that we actually, you know, averaged more than one episode a week. That's how crazy 2017 was, 55 weeks. Uh, we're brought to you by the Strauss Center, the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. was long enough without having to, I mean, imagine if it was a leap year. Imagine a form- we had to suffer through one more day of that oh, insanity. Lord Almighty. Well, I'm Bobby Chesney, and you are Steve R and Steve Lonick. You are. I, I are. That, thou art. <laughs> um, what I really am, though, is uh, my my faculty assistant, Marsha Moyer, brought us uh, uh, two bobbleheads for our podcast today. Um, she bought she brought us a masked Kylo Ren, and she brought us an unmasked Ben Solo. And I have appropriated the masked Kylo Ren for for my sort of evil dark side version of our podcast. You're letting me be the, you know. Ben Solo? Yeah, I, I don't I know how – I'm trying to figure out. There's a big scar across his face. Is Maybe that's part of it. Uh, it I, I was going to say that your face is prettier. I need the helmet. I, I, I dispute that, but I do like it. All right, so I've got Ben Solo. So thanks, Marsha. Thanks, Marsha. You're the best. Um, all right, so we got a lot to talk about, and we're going to actually, uh, I think, hit – the new standard of trying to get this done in under an hour each week. What? Uh, yeah, famous uh, last words, right? I, I went back and listened. This may have been a mistake to our very first episode in honor of, of Thursday's one year anniversary. Oh, yeah? How long is it? 37 minutes and 37 seconds. But we're just getting started. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are we going to talk about this week? We've got a load to talk about. We have the FISA Amendments Reform Act, which we began talking about last week. We're going to hit a few more highlights this week now that it's law. Um, Speaking Steve, of FISA, yes. hashtag release the podcast. Release the podcast. That's got to be the title. That is of this definitely week. the title of our of our podcast. All right. This well, week. it's our podcast. Of course, is much more than four pages, but we will discuss <laughs> the memo. So, so our podcast is more than four pages. I might also say our podcast is more than just the partisan hackery cliff notes. I think a version. lot of people would dispute what you just said. Well, no, no, that's just that's just no, no. They would just say that my version of the pod, my side of the podcast, oh, yeah. is part of the We each have our supporters on that. Um, I don't, I don't, you know what? I don't even think that, like, I don't even think that that I'm not even going to name who I would put in this in this sentence would describe you as a partisan hack. I appreciate that. Well, I certainly wouldn't describe you as a partisan hack either. There you go. Um, All right. Surprise, surprise. We think we're both quite serious. <laughs> <laughs> well, by that logic, we we are we are we we are like the children of Lake Wobegon. Or above and beyond average every time. All right, so we've got some FISA. Well, speaking of which, uh, Chris, Chris Thiele, let's digress. Chris Thiele, uh, formerly of Nickel Creek fame, who took over for Garrison Keillor on uh, Prairie Home Companion. Uh, they're com- I know this. They're coming to Austin to do their show soon, and he, he's amazing. He's one of the world's great like mandolin players. He's unbelievable. Um, but uh, I think it's interesting. They don't call it This American Life anymore. It's called uh, Live From Here. Mm, what do I you think of that? that? Um, I, I think it's it's a cleverly ambiguous name for a podcast, kind of like the National Security Law Podcast. Exactly. We, need, we do need to be more direct in how we describe things. Back to work. Um, so we've got the FISA Amendments Reform Act. We've got hashtag release the memo. And of course, it wouldn't be a National Security Law Podcast if we didn't have the latest update in Doe versus Mattis. Doe versus Mattis. We've got, uh, we're going to talk about the transfer ban issue and, and a really kind of, I think, a cool and interesting uh, classic doctrinal question that's about the uh, open textured area between two Supreme Court decisions, basically. Uh, so we'll talk about that. And then, of course, it also wouldn't be the NSL podcast if we didn't have something to say about the, the travel, travel ban. ban. Um, and while we're on the subject, speaking of travel bans, um, your friend and mine, Max Boot, is on Twitter 
um, pointing out some quirks in his air travel while he's on his way to Austin for an event here tomorrow. So I feel some degree of personal guilt. Yeah, we. The it's all your fault. The, fa the it's fabulous. All your no, fault. It's, all, it's all your fault. No, this is this is really Will Inboden's fault. It's the, it's the the Clement Center, our, our fabulous uh, Clement Center for National Security here at UT, uh, and, and sister institution of the Strauss Center that brings you this show. Uh, is hosting Max here in Austin for a talk on his fabulous new book tomorrow. Uh, and I was just noting on his Twitter feed that he got supremely hassled in the TSA pre-check line. And the explanation given to him was his, well, let's save that. You got to listen okay. to find yeah. out. Tell you what, the, 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 I'll, I'll just say it has something to do with January 22nd, 2018, and a statute Congress passed in 2005. Awesome. You got to listen in to find out what we're talking about. Uh, and then we'll wrap up with a quick note uh, on Anti-Deficiency Act issues that, at least for a moment there, and no doubt soon again, will be lingering. I would say lingering. For, for exactly 18 days, <laughs> right, are off the table. February what? Uh, I, whatever eight? it is. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, I, I think, you know, you and I may have different views on on the winners and losers from the immediate resolution of the government shutdown, but uh, we're not done yet. No, no, certainly not. And so it seems like a good time now, before the next shutdown hits, to just talk briefly about what, especially in the national security law space, the Anti-Deficiency Act actually does contra perhaps some suggestions by a certain president of the United States on Twitter. Okay, and you know what, while we're doing that, we should also bring up this issue that got a little play overnight and is getting some attention about a provision that was slipped into the most recent mm. uh, spending bill uh, that has a complex effect on the ability of the executive branch to repurpose funds that were appropriated for the intelligence community. And so it's a little bit in the weeds, but we'll talk about that. And because that's so much awesome stuff to talk about, and because we have no radio discipline, and therefore we constantly interject our frivolity as we're going, I think we probably won't have a separate frivolity section at the end. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I think you know, people will be done with us by then. <laughs> Both of them. Um, All indeed. Right. And, and it's not like there's a, I mean, unless you want to give everyone your Pro Bowl prediction. <laughs> Wait, are you saying the Super Bowl is a foregone conclusion or just that any prediction by me is not worth the candle? Neither. There's a whole other episode between now and the Super Bowl. Ah, we can save that. Exactly. Very good. All right. Uh, without further ado, uh, topic number one is the FISA Amendments Reform Act. This we really is, need a better name for it. Yeah, because FARA is taken FARA, by other national security stuff. There are multiple national security FARA statutes. Yeah, they should have just called it the 702 Renewal Act. That's what we're going to call it. So the 702 Renewal Act is, is out we there. We appropriate that name. 702 Renewal Act. From here, from this point forward, anyone who throws roses at my son's feet. So shall it be. All right. Uh, we mentioned the warrant requirement last time. I, I've spent some time with it, and I want to say something about it that I think is uh, the most useful description I can come up with about when it applies and when it doesn't. So I'll run through that real quick. We should also talk about what it does on so-called about collection. And then, you know, there are a lot of little smaller parts to it. The third thing that I want to mention is a subtle bit that concerns the phenomenon of parallel construction. And yes, that dinging sound was my phone falling off my lap and shooting across the room. Steve, pick it up and give me the news. Did I break anything? Uh, that's just, uh, just my heart. Uh, there you go. All right. So warrant requirement. Um, the whole big battle, the thing that was most contentious in the, in the renewal was the attempt to impose a warrant requirement in, in a, I'm kind of generalizing here, but on the FBI when it, tries to run queries for criminal investigations using U.S. person identifiers, running them against the fruits of 702 collection. And of course, 702 collection is not collected for criminal intelligence, criminal prosecution purposes, but rather for foreign intelligence purposes. So this was a huge bone of contention. The end result is there is, for the first time, a, war a warrant requirement 
in this area, but it's drafted pretty narrowly. It's not nothing, but it's not remotely what the advocates were, were seeking. So here's what you need to know. The warrant requirement is not applicable for an FBI investigation that's a foreign intelligence investigation. It's not applicable even when it's a criminal investigation at the mere assessment stage. That's the first stage of sniffing around a possible criminal investigation. That is to say, it only comes into play kind of counterintuitively once the investigation's proceeded to a more serious stage, the predicated investigation stage. So if it's a predicated criminal investigation, it might apply. But even then, there are exceptions. Uh, most notably, there's a general carve-out for cases or investigations that pertain to national security. Now, the statute itself doesn't clearly define national security here. It's a famously uh, confused question as to what's in and what's out. Um, there were other you know, versions of this bill that didn't become law that had more elaboration on this. There are pre-existing uses of the concept. I think it's more than amply clear that national security is defined reasonably broadly. Um, and the part that I think is most interesting in that respect is, at least in some contexts, it's defined to include more or less the entire category of cybersecurity crimes. Uh, and if you read that for all it's worth, then that would pick up Computer Fraud and Abuse Act in general, uh, access device fraud, et cetera. So there's that complication. What are the boundaries there? And finally, there's a, a follow-on exemption for situations in which even though a warrant's otherwise required because it's a non-national security predicated criminal investigation, the warrant requirement drops out if the attorney general determines there's a good faith reason to believe there's a threat to life or serious bodily injury. So that's going to pick up some amount of um, at least uh, ongoing threat type investigations. So beyond that, there's plenty of crime that FBI investigates <laughs> that therefore would require a warrant before they, they go to the uh, database with the U.S. person identifier query. Um, Steve, uh, you know, how, should, how should the privacy advocates feel about this? I mean, I said this last week, and I'm not sure my mind has changed that much in the ensuing days. I think, you know, not great. It's more than nothing, but a lot's going to depend upon how it gets operationalized, especially in the FISA court. Yeah, and, and it'll be interesting to see if we start eventually getting some criminal prosecutions where the fruits of information gathered without a warrant then get used in a criminal prosecution. Now, there's a separate provision of the statute that says what sort of cases, and it, it doesn't perfectly track all the things I just said, but it largely tracks it. Um, there should be some cases coming down the pipe eventually where non-warrant post-Section 702 Renewal Act uh, queries were run, fruits were obtained, uh, Evidence was submitted at trial, and then there or is, is identified, and then there's a motion to suppress, and right. we might get some interesting, uh, both Fourth Amendment suppression motions, but also uh, motions raising compliance questions and under, testing. This, under the 702 Reform Act. Yeah, exactly. And and so I can imagine, for example, a Computer Fraud and Abuse Act somewhere down the road that's in no way involving, say, some sort of APT or foreign threat, but and therefore not not an, a traditional national security type case, but more of a run of the mill one. And you might have a, an interesting question then whether a court agrees with how DOJ interprets this authority. By the way, this may be why the statute requires the Inspector General of the Justice Department to report to Congress on how DOJ interprets this authority. And, you know, those congressional reports, man, they're, they're that, awesome. And that solves all the problems. <laughs> just stack um, it right there with the other ones in the back of the Raiders of the Lost Ark warehouse. I will just say, I mean, and this was true in the context of 702 itself, the notion that 
the matter can get fully vindicated and litigated through motions to, to suppress depends upon voluntary choices by the government to use evidence obtained pursuant to such warrants in criminal prosecution. So if the government had concerns, for example, about the sort of testing the limits of its authority, it could avoid litigating those limits simply presumably by not bringing those criminal cases. This this will raise interesting questions about the extent to which the, the people at Main DOJ who might be conscious of those issues and, and invested in them are keeping tabs on and, and aware of uh, line prosecutors who and, and FBI agents out at, at various uh, locations who might run these searches, right? So yeah, it, it might be yet for the reason why you'd really want like a confirmed assistant attorney general to run the National Security Division. What a crazy idea! Do why would we want to have yeah. any you know yeah. permanent, permanent people in those positions? Um, now warrants weren't the only big issue about which there was controversy um, about collection. <laughs> right. is a big deal. So the basic idea with seven hundred two is that once the FISA court approves or on an annual basis, agrees and certifies that NSA's procedures for ensuring that their their targets for 702 collection are in fact non-U.S. persons that are not in the United States, and that the minimization procedures are all going to be adequate, and, and that these these querying limitations we just discussed are all okay. Once that's approved, what actually happens, of course, is that uh, you can go to providers, U.S. companies or companies subject to court process in the U.S., and you can oblige them to cooperate. Well, cooperate in what? in pulling the communications or searching for the communications mm -hmm. if it's a backbone provider uh, based on those non-U.S. overseas targets. Well, that's tasking, right? Tasking with those identifiers. And the main sort of center of gravity for this activity is tasking for messages to or from, you know, uh, John Doe at Hotmail.com, whatever it is. Uh, but you can also imagine that those same identifiers, they might not be, they might not appear in the to or from of the communications platform. They may be in the body somewhere. And so the message may in some sense be about or it could reference the identifier in question. So about collection is where you're grabbing it. It's a communication between two other platforms, not the one you're targeting, but there's a reference to the identifier in the message. And this has been the fruit of, of great controversy, um, it, in part because for technical reasons, it was con it became clear over time that this resulted in a lot of incidental collection of U.S. person communications uh, in, in ways that was different and, and perhaps beyond uh, what happens with to-from collection. And eventually, not that long ago, uh, NSA voluntarily folded up shop on about collection saying, in effect, we can't get past the technical problems that are resulting in some of this overcollection. It's not worth the candle for a variety of reasons. The, the yield on the intelligence side isn't quite worth the trouble this is causing, so we voluntarily give it up, which led some of the privacy advocates to say, well, if, if that's how you feel about it, you won't mind then if we codify that right. you can't do this. Right. Government responds, we're only saying on the, on the state of current technology that the trade-off isn't worth it. If, with new technology, the trade-off could be different, and it would be worth it. So one thing to watch in the legislation was whether it was going to codify the ban or what. Well, what it did was it said, if and when the government decides to restart about collection, first, 30 days notice to Congress. And the burden, of course, is on Congress to actually pass a, pass a law that gets signed or otherwise enacted into law. Uh, that forbids the startup. So it's a little bit of a, a hollow threat, I suppose. I mean, that's not all that likely that Congress is going to pass a law or that the White House is going to sign uh, something like this. Uh, and meanwhile, you also have to get Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court approval for the startup. And the statute specifies that when the FISC gets that request, it must appoint an amicus 
to argue the issue. Hey! And then in a part of the statute that didn't get much attention, but I think is quite important, um, it's now clear that you can pay the amicus and you can pay the technical consultant if you retain one. Dude, there's we're going to get rich. I was about to say, like, can we get in on this, Steve? At Consider this whole thing a tryout. This, this is what you need is some guys who will come into the FISC and in the middle of their argument start talking about Star Wars. Every court needs that. I actually think that's a pretty strong case. I, mean, I now have audio proof that I can get even the Supreme Court laughing in the middle of an oral argument. So <laughs> I feel like that's true. a, you know, I, I have I have credentials. I have references. Oh, my God. That's how I can finally top you. You've had this awesome practice experience of appearing in the Supreme Court. I've got to go to the FISC. Yeah, yeah. This, Actually, is a, this is a good question. Is Fisk, does, does appearing before the Fisk trump appearing before the Supreme Court? On this podcast, it's a tie. <laughs> In real life, uh, well. Yeah. Um, okay, so that, there's about collection. There's there's At some point, yeah. it'll start back up again, yep. most likely. It and then, down the, and then the question is, what does Congress do? Yeah, and, and the effect of this will be seen then in that Congress will know before it actually happens. They won't stop it, but there will be, you know, Senator Wyden or Paul or whoever their their uh, successors may be in some future point will uh, make loud noises about it. Speaking of FISA. Yeah. Oh, wait, we haven't done parallel construction. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I'm jumping the gun. Don't I'm jumping the gun. I'm too excited to release the memo. Okay. <laughs> Hold on. Oh, that should, we should start a new hashtag. Hold the memo. Hold the memo. <laughs> <laughs> really? You, you, uh, let me just digress. Uh, release the memo, release the Kraken. That's the phrase they're looking for. They, I don't think they're trying to be funny, but I can't see release the without saying Kraken. Somehow I think all the people who have adopted the release the memo hashtag, just that would be lost on them. I think we might need to just start tweeting out <laughs> images of Clash of the Titans, the Kraken, this sort of claymation sort of creature. Anyone claimed it was like that kind of deal. All right, Bobby, focus. Parallel focus, construction. Focus. All right, so part, part of the issues, another issue lurking around is this idea that one thing that happens is that FBI, for criminal investigative purposes, gets its hands on the fruits of uh, 702 collection, and there's issues with that. But what about when they they use those fruits not to directly take it into court as evidence, but rather as a lead or a tip that they can then develop other evidence in a way they wouldn't have been able to, right. or wouldn't have known to, at least not right away, but they can do it in a way that seems clean from any outside observer's perspective, and thus you never have notification to the defendant that a FISA collection was used, therefore no litigation about the FISA collection, goes to your concern about the adequacy of uh, post hoc litigation as, as a legal vetting mechanism. So there's always been this concern about so-called parallel construction, and it got a lot of play during the run-up of this legislation. What does the statute do about it? Well, not a lot, but there's a cryptic provision towards the end of the statute that says that in six months, um, there needs to be a report to Congress on... Ooh, another one of those. Another one of those. Make room in the warehouse. Uh, how DOJ interprets the, quote, obtained or derived from rule that is sort of the key statutory hook for the obligation to notify criminal defendants. And right. so... Insofar as this report really takes that job seriously, what it should result in is disclosure and clarification to some congressional leaders as to just what rules in theory and maybe in practice, depending on how aggressive the IG is, um, the, the interpretation of when you've used 702 collection as a tip and, and when you have to disclose it and when you don't. So maybe in six months, somebody's going to come out and say, Hey, here's another release the memo scenario. Release the IG memo on parallel construction. 
Steve's shaking his head. If this was TV, this would this would make more sense. I, I'd be sh- I'm shaking my head and rolling my eyes. I, there, I don't know if there's a, a word that uh, summarizes that particular combination of facial expressions. This is a perfect segue because to release you, the memo. You, you've expressed all this doubt about the utility of reports and documents. Let's talk about another document that you are doubting. Well, so did you um, did you see the big news on Infowars this morning? I don't, despite the fact that this guy, (laughs) whose name I won't even mention, the guy who runs that ridiculous site. Jalex Owns. A guy named Jalex Owns is here in Austin, incredibly. Uh, No, I was not Wait, we let him in? He's allowed in Austin? We let him in? Everybody's allowed in Austin. Look, our slogans keep Austin weird. Um, But actually, I wouldn't say that's weird. I think it's harmful. So InfoWars posted this morning that they had the exclusive memo. Oh, they've got it? They've got the memo. (laughs) And Bobby, what they posted was an April 2016 FISA, FISC opinion. That there you we've, go. That's been out for eight months that we've talked about on this podcast before mm. that, like, is known to the world that says, hey, guess what? There were some concerns under Section 702 at various points in time. Whoa. All I can say is Alex Jones, uh, Steve Vladek, would like to be your legal uh, consultant. Forget CNN. <laughs> Maybe not. All right. So tell, tell the good people of the world who have not been on Twitter, what the heck is hashtag release the memo all about? I don't. I'm not going to do it justice. So, so let me take a shot, Bobby, and please, you know, fill in with your Republican lunatic fringe friends. You know, the- <laughs> I like how at the last minute it pivoted, it steered away from me towards my friends. <laughs> no, I'm uh, worse. Know, we, we all have friends. Yeah, we do. Okay. Um, so here's what I gather. So um, Devin Nunes. Your, your, your friend and mine, I say sarcastically, the, the chairman of the House, the, the supposedly recused chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, yeah. is doing a good job of being recused, apparently has a four-page memo that summarizes various conclusions that he and his staff and nobody else made about the underlying classified FISA application that the Justice Department filed in obtaining a classic FISA warrant against Carter Page. Back during the campaign. Back during the campaign. This is sort of the whole, the whole, the bottom of the whole scandal over Obama wiretapping Trump. So this is this is a claim that when the How is Nash- that by the way? Yes, perfect. Okay. Very clean, straightforward. So this is a claim that in the uh, in the moment in time when the National Security Division attorneys went before a FISA judge to ask for a traditional individualized surveillance order to against, mo- Carter Page, against Carter Page, which requires probable, co- sorry. probable cause to believe an agent that he is an agent of a foreign power, um, that part of the application evidence that made that probable cause case was uh, material from the Steele dossier. And so the idea is to link it up with claims that the Steele dossier was this big, uh, you know, kind of, you know, it was a plot by Hillary to, to generate fake news about Trump. And then it becomes the basis for a surveillance that then becomes the basis for what eventually evolves into the Mueller investigation. Therefore, original sin. Therefore, it's all, right, that's It's the all claim. Hillary's fault. I well, mean, it's, it's, I, not to put too fine a point, right? You know, the Hillary campaign paid for the Steele dossier, ergo, everything that follows from it is tainted. Right. So, so there are, there are, you know, endless flaws with this. But, but before we talk about the, uh, the uh, near infinite number of, of mistakes involved in that line of logic, um, let's just, I think it's fascinating to watch the manufacturing of the scandal. Yes. And it was really on the surface. So there comes this moment the night before. The story unfolded on sort of a, a 24-hour news basis. Uh, Breitbart 
Fox News, Hannity in particular, suddenly all have this story about there's a memo, right. the, and, and you have a series— And a whole bunch of Twitter bots. A series of—well, we'll get to that. <laughs> a series of uh, members of Congress uh, who were allies of Nunes, all saying, all in clearly you know contemporaneous and coordinated fashion, hey, there's this memo, all of them saying things along the lines of, this is worse than Watergate, it may be the worst blow to our democracy in history of Ever. America— uh, all this hyperbole, but the, the the mad brilliance of it, Steve, was to depict it from the outset as a a document that is being held back from the public against the wishes of all these people in the Trump administration, and the Democrats are holding it back. And of course, it, it, it it's so brilliant because <laughs> the the natural response is to be like for the Democrats or for the the Never Trump Republicans and for, or the ACLU or for independents. Or, well, we'll get to the ACLU. That, <laughs> I have words for them here. Um, the natural for everyone who's in a position of sanity on this issue to say like, well, we're not holding it back. Right. Release it. Oh, okay, good. All right, then everybody wants it out. Re- if everyone wants the memo, release the yeah, memo. Release. Hashtag course, release the memo. So let's talk about some flaws in the logic of the memo. Okay, you pointed out the memo was originally depicted like it was something like a FISA court opinion or it was some primary source. It's not. It, it's a staff document that the chairman is, apparently has, you know, adopted as his own. That represents uh, sort of a talking points type executive summary of what they believe based on their various investigations. Um, now that doesn't mean it doesn't have quotes from actual evidence or, or, or intelligence or from primary sources. It, it, no doubt it might. But in, in fact, surely it will have some quotes. Right. But the money, the the, the gravamen, is going to be in the characterizations. And 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 presumably what hope what folks are hoping comes out if it's released. Now the the what I think the critical point here is the 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 document that I suspect we all would agree is interesting, right? Is the underlying application that the government made to the FISA court to obtain the FISA warrant against Carter Page. Right. Classified information. Classified information. Um you know I Bobby, can you think of someone who is an original classification authority mm. who might, if this were really the clear smoking gun right, of abuse This is like an exam Trump. question. If, if, if this was TV, you could see me rubbing my temples. Yeah. I'm going to think my way through this. All right, well, get it, back it to need me. To be, no, it need to be an executive branch official. Executive branch official. Let's we'll see. Uh, probably somebody senior. We need a senior. Um, the deputy Steve, undersecretary. Of I've that. got it. What? I think the president. The president. The president. The president could declassify the freaking underlying FISA application. The entire act- thing, if he wanted. The whole thing. The the application. The warrant. The order. Like, there's no reason why, if there actually was any of the like, oh my god, it's a conspiracy evidence that we are led to believe is in this, you know, Cliff Notes Nunes memo. Why this president? would have any reason not to release, at the very worst, Bobby, a redacted version right. of, so the, of the underlying wait, you're, you're not So you're saying that House Democrats aren't the ones precluding public disclosure of, of the memo? I think what I'm trying to say is is if there was actually a there there, there wouldn't be a faux sure. controversy about no, it. I know. Well, and of course, what will happen is eventually, of course, everything comes out. Yeah. So eventually somebody will say like, all right, now we'll release it. Or even better, we'll hand it off to somebody. It just appears online and then you kind of Wiki skip leaks. past that. Right, yeah. Okay, well, let's jump on that yes. now. So soon as this <laughs> orchestrated campaign to try to, add, in, in this hashtag release the memo. Yeah, the hashtag I don't know about you. I started. Getting, I started getting trolled on Twitter about this because I was quoted in a New York Times story. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, my, uh, I couldn't really even use the notifications on Twitter for about thirty six hours because all the cuckoo stuff that started showing up there. So, um, 
Among the people throwing fuel in the fire, though, were some unusual suspects. Now, I wasn't surprised when WikiLeaks got into They're it. They're not an unusual suspect. I wasn't surprised when various authoritative sources started to track Russian chatbots and the rest, started showing how heavily, how beyond anything else the Russians were pushing at that moment in time. Hashtag release the memos out there. I wasn't surprised when Edward Snowden weighed in from <laughs> Russia with love to, to say, aha, see. I, 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 feel, I feel you're building to something here. Yeah, and I, I bet you'll agree with me. Yes. I thought it was a shameful moment when someone who I hope was just like the social media intern for ACLU piled on and said, yeah, release the memo. Hashtag, uh, hashtag release the memo. ACLU, come on. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I mean, I'm just not going to defend it. I mean, no, I, it's, I, not I just, it's not defensible. I, the, the, you know, playing into the hyperbole, the, the unfound, not just unfounded, the easily repudiated yeah. and transparently manipulative hyperbole surrounding the Devin Nunes cliff notes. I'm not even going to call it a memo. Release the Devin Nunes cliff notes. Yeah, just talking right? points. They're right. Points. Um, I mean, it's like, listen, I, I want to be as clear as possible. I don't know for a fact that no abuse of FISA was committed. Sure. In the How, could, it? How right. could we? Um, but you know what? I don't trust Devin Nunes to know that either. Right. Well, here's here's a few things, right? So from what's been gradually, what's been whispered out, what's leaking out is, it seems pretty clear that the, the thrust of this is going to be about, it's going to be some sort of attempt to show that FBI investigators were aware of some of the funding behind Fusion GPS that led to the hiring of Chris Steele to produce the dossier. Um, it will be presumed in the memo that the dossier is full of false statements, whereas, in fact, there's a lot of debate about that and plenty of people who think that a lot of what's in it, actually, some of what's in it yeah. um, is true. But more importantly, I think uh, Shane Harris's reporting emphasizes this. Um, there's tons of other, there was tons of other information yes. long before the Steele dossier yes. that was going to lead to an attempt to and probably achieve a FISA uh, uh, surveillance and, order and this for, is, for, and, for Carter Page. And so, and so this is what I tried to say in the New York Times story on Friday, which is... Even assuming, and for reasons you've just articulated, I don't accept it, but even assuming arguendo, that the Steele dossier is a complete fabrication, right? And I don't think it is. But even if it was, um, you'd still have to convince me that the FISA application was based on nothing other than the Steele dossier. Like, you can't get right. from A to B, you, you can't get from the Steele dossier to the FISA warrant right? Unless you are sure that there was no other independently corroborative evidence, right, to support the underlying FISA yep. application. And the reality is, I bet a whole lot of money that there was a ton well, the timeline, of corroborating the, the evidence. The timeline that Shane reported yes. shows that there was already an investigation. That's right. That and time. so I just, so so to, to accept that the memo is actually going to uncover some kind of grand conspiracy, one has to not only accept that the Steele dossier is a complete fabrication, but that every other piece of evidence that there was this long-running investigation that had turned up other leads, that had turned up additional evidence, is all fictitious right. as well. So I think we've uh, pounded that one to the ground. Let's move on. And, uh, you know, well, I'm sure we've not heard the last to release the memo, but what about don't release John Doe? Yeah. So John Doe, uh, as longtime listeners all know, is the U.S. citizen slash Saudi citizen who's held as an enemy combatant in Iraq by the U.S. military, captured in Syria by U.S. Uh, allied forces on the ground there, turned over to the U.S. It's going on four or five months now of military detention. And we've been tracking the progress of you know what would become of him. And the issue that's currently in play, Steve, is the question of whether Judge Chutkin should uh, renew her earlier order, uh, barring him being transferred to the custody of a third country, whether that be 
Saudi Arabia, where he's, he's actually from, or uh, Iraq, where he is currently held and might be prosecuted, uh, barring the government from transferring him, at least until the litigation uh, is concluded. Now, when we've talked about this previously, we've talked a lot about how uh, there's some similarities here with the Munaf litigation mm-hmm. and, and the idea of resisting transfer in this situation on the grounds that you might be tortured or otherwise abused in the receiving state's hands. Um, and we've talked about proxy detention. And we've, we've talked about whether there's any sort of notion that transferring him would just be an attempt to defeat jurisdiction, whether that logic really makes sense when your your litigation is to get released. Uh, but one thing we did not talk about, and this was this is an error that uh, we should have mentioned this before, uh, the so-called Valentine or Valentine rule. Uh, Valentine's a 1930s Supreme Court case involving... The, uh, the, the definition the, of an old chestnut. An old, it's an old chestnut. You got to say that. It's required. It's in our contract. Seriously. Uh, it's like, I, it's like I, when pitchers help their own cause. Listen, I, I I think we have listeners who have a drinking game where every time I call something an old chestnut. Oh, is that right? They, they took one back. All right. Uh, listeners who have uh, key terms that we use a lot. I know there Bingo. were I know there was some earlier. Send, send us a uh, tweet as some of these so we know either to say them more often or less often is the case. What, what was your thing about things being determinative? Overdetermined? Overdetermined. I like saying that's overdetermined. Yeah. I haven't done it in a while. Um, it's overdetermined. All right. Uh, let me throw one out there that we'll start trying to fit in more. That's belt and suspenders. That's yeah. a favorite of mine. Lashed to the mast also. Yeah. Okay. Hoisted on their own petard. I haven't used that one in a oh, while. Oh, hoisted. That's good. Okay. So um, in Valentine, you had Americans who were in the United States, but while previously in France, allegedly committed crimes, and the French wanted them for ordinary criminal prosecution. So they make an extradition request. There's a treaty, but it's not clear and ultimately is interpreted not to include an obligation for America to uh, re- to release its own citizens, to extradite its own citizens back to France, uh, as opposed to other people. And likewise, the French don't have to send their own citizens to the United States. So it's a gap in the treaty that wasn't foreclosed by more express language. The Supreme Court says in that circumstance, Chief Justice Hughes wrote that the government, though, though extradition is a national function, there's no inherent Article II authority to do that to citizens in the United States in an extradition scenario. You have to have a delegation of authority from Congress or a treaty, which is effectively doing the same thing. And in that case, they didn't have one. So those guys didn't have to go face whatever it was they were going to face in Paris. So that's the basic Valentine rule. You have to have an affirmative basis for transfer. ACLU is saying, in this case involving John Doe, Where's the affirmative basis for the transfer? The Valentine rule, regardless of torture concerns, he's simply he's a citizen. You just can't transfer him. So at first blush, sounds right. But there's another Supreme Court case in the mix, Munaf v. Guerin, 2008, which we've talked about a lot on this show. Um, we've talked about it a lot, you know, walking through its its fear of torture issues and the Farah issues in that case. I knew we could get Farah in there. <laughs> there we go. Uh, the 98 Farah. Yeah, the 98 Farah. As the, opposed the to the four, Section 702 Renewal Act. Or, or the 1938 FARA. Oh, heavens. So, there are a bunch of FARAs, right? Okay. It's a, it's L- a, listeners, just really quickly, di- di- a little bit of timeout, right? Here's a, here's, a, here's a FARA timeout. The Foreign Agents Registration Act is FARA, right, which is 1938, or FARA. I okay. don't know. Uh, the Foreign Affairs Reform and Restructuring, Restructuring Act. Act of 1998 is the source of the statutory obligation against transferring anyone in U.S. custody to a foreign country where they credibly fear torture, implementing in, our obligations under Article 3 of the U.N. Convention Against Torture. And now the there's the FISA, FISA Amendments, Amendments Reauthorization Act. Oh, heavens. How about FISA ARA? FISA Faisara. Faisara. Agent R. Yeah, we're going to have to redo this whole deal. Get the uh, people who do U.S. code on this, please. 
Yes, the Office of the Law Revision Council. Who I have a problem with because they Uh-oh. took Title 50. Yeah, they just, they, they, they just they, they, out of the clear blue yeah. sky one day just announced like, oh, by the way, all the covert action stuff that you guys know by certain numbers when you're not quoting directly from the National Security Act, you know it from the U.S. Code numbers. Yeah, we just totally changed them all. So, Bobby, I'm about to blow your mind. Hmm. You know the U.S. Code is not actually law. I don't care. It's what we cite. It's what we cite. All right. So when I tell my Fed course, so my Fed course, it's in the U.S. Code. I'm like, have you read the actual public law? Like, well, it's in the code. P-U-B, period, space, L, period, and then go from there. Space, N-O, period. There you go. Okay. Okay, So back to the Valentine Rule. Valentine Rule (laughs) says you need a statutory or treaty-based affirmative authority to turn over a citizen to some foreign country. Um, Seems like a real problem here. But in Munoff, the same problem existed. Chief Justice Roberts in 2008 said the Valentine Rule doesn't apply, whereas in that case, the person had voluntarily gone abroad, was captured abroad, was wanted in the country where he was captured right there were charges pending and he said where the united states was holding that person at the behest of exactly so so it's interesting right because so construed doe falls squarely between exactly valentine and munaf right because unlike in valentine you have a u.s citizen captured abroad and held at least in one country to which there might be some possible transfer opportunity but unlike in munaf there are no charges pending in the country where he's where he was captured or even where he's now being held. But, but also, I mean, he traveled to Syria, right? But and he did no, voluntarily and, and go. And no one's suggesting that that's where he's ending up. So so I wrote a post that went up on Lawfare just a little while before we started Which recording. Which I read while you were walking over you, here. You did? Well, because you were late. And I was like, why is he late? And then I saw, oh, tweet from Bobby Chesney. <laughs> Like I've got a lot to do, um, and also it was really, <coughs> it was like yeah, you're not busy. I don't know what you do. You've got these bobbleheads. Wow! <laughs> so this is where you take your helmet off and you smash it to pieces <laughs> in the turbo the wall. lift. Yeah. Oh, is it a turbo lift in Star Wars? I think that's uh, that's Star Trek, right? Yeah. Is that, what is this called? Oh. Turbo elevator? I don't know. Uh, computer deck seven. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So. Um, this is, it's clearly not on all fours with either opinion, which means as a practical matter, it's doctrinally ambiguous. Uh, Chutkin's not bound by precedent here in a strict way, though no doubt that if, if a higher, if the circuit eventually disagrees with her, it'll be depicted as, no, you, you right. erred because it's controlled by one blah, or the blah. other. So let me ask you a question. I, I, I read your post, but I don't think I saw this address in your post. So imagine if the U.S. and the Saudis entered into a formal agreement Right, an executive, a sole executive agreement mm. in in foreign relations. Could that be parlance. the affirmative? That's uh, you know, Valentine I think did not have reason to consider. Yeah. Right, whether because Pink and Belmont, the big executive agreement cases, are later than Valentine. Interesting. Right. So, so what Steve's getting at is that if you treat a non-treaty international agreement as do, positive do you, law, right, is, which, is, which which the Supreme Court has sometimes done right. in the last 20 years, for example, in the context of displacing contrary state laws, for example, in the Garamendi case. Right. In which case it becomes an exception, or is it yeah. not? So I, Mess. Yeah, it's in, what it means is Chutkin has some freedom of maneuver here, but what I wrote about was that I've come to the view that she doesn't have enough information to really resolve this, because if nothing else, we do need to have a clear sense of what's going on here, because insofar as what happens is Iraq says, we will prosecute this guy. We mm-hmm. want to prosecute him and turn him over to us. Then it's still not on all fours with Munaf, but it becomes much closer. And the one distinction that remains, that he was captured across the border in Syria, 
only really matters if you think that the key to Munaf was that it was direct territorial jurisdiction Iraq was exercising there as to AQI fighters mm. who were in theater, or if instead it's simply that it was one of these several proper heads right. of criminal which prosecutorial of, authority. Which of the two facts in Munaf was more important, that they were p- held in Iraq or that they were picked up in Iraq? Right? Yeah, and, and I think the key is actually it's not really either of those. It's right. that does the requesting state, because it becomes a requesting state, yep. does it have a proper international law blessed justification for asserting its criminal prescriptive jurisdiction? Right. Right. And I think that Iraq clearly does as to al-Qaeda fighters. I mean, sorry, uh, uh, ISIS, ISIS fighters right. who m- may be abroad in, in the Islamic in uh, Syria, but nonetheless, it's it, in the same way the United States routinely would although exercise do we, jurisdiction. Although, do we still have the sofa with Iraq that precludes the assertion of local uh, fa- criminal jurisdiction? Famous, famously, no sofa in Iraq, right? So we yeah. leave, we leave, and we never had one again. Well, I thought I think we, had, that, we had some agreement. Well, we never. So remember, in the, the Obama administration withdraws because we can't agree to a new sofa. For, it's a new sofa. That's what it was. There's no new sofa. Right. No my, new sofa. Sofa, no, by the there's way. There's no new sofa in my house, and there's no new sofa in Iraq. Um, sofa, just status of forces agreement, right? Yes. Usually the U.S. requires these whenever we station troops yeah. in a foreign country. But I think, I think as applies to this fact pattern, it's fairly simple. I don't think there's any doubt that Iraq could legitimately yeah. try to prosecute the guy, even if he was captured across the border. But once again, border. right, if either the Iraqis or the Saudis were in a big hurry to get their hands on John Doe, I would have thought we'd heard about it. We would heard. Yeah, about no, it doesn't seem that they, you know, they have no particular. But if they come forward and represent yep. that they yep. do, yeah. that then, can't then, really then second guess it. Um, one more complication, right? And the what I what I take from the docket to be the current source of a whole lot of fighting um, between the ACLU and the government is the government has finally filed. I think their first substantive justification, basically the return that we've talked about before, their theory. For on the ba- the basis on which Doe is actually substantively detainable. Oh, I've not seen that yet. Lay well, it on it's me. sealed. Ah! <laughs> well, are you sure that they filed it? Because I know they filed a sealed declaration. So I think they also filed separate? a sealed. I think they filed a sealed. So my understanding from the docket, I could be wrong because yeah. it's all sealed. Is that the 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 ACLU filed something I believe yesterday, seeking to unseal at least one of the things the government filed under seal on the ground that here was the first statement of the government's theory of its of why it gets to detain John Doe and why the heck should that be sealed. Yeah, that legal theory certainly should not be sealed. And and if and if there's stuff in there by way of facts or hey, that's what redaction is. Hello, for. we all we all could use Photoshop. Yeah. All right. So or not Photoshop, Acrobat. So I mean, if any well, listeners Photoshop actually too. if any listeners have knowledge of whether or not <laughs> the government's a actually slip. Yes, 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 yes it was. <laughs> If any listeners have knowledge of whether what's been filed is the sealed declaration explaining the transfer position, which I'll say something about in a moment, or if instead they've also filed their return and just I feel sealed like it. It's, I feel like, I yeah. don't know if it was the full return or if it was like a preliminary statement, yeah. but something something merits E was sealed. Okay. Well, I'm curious about that, and that sounds problematic. On the declarations, Spencer Shue reports that in the open court proceedings yesterday, um, Judge Chutkin described the sealed declaration that the government filed to explain what is it up to by way of possible transfer, described it as, uh, as somewhat deficient. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it's hard to know what to make of that. I speculate in my post that what I think is probably true, which is the government's still not sure what they might do. They probably adverted to the, you know, possibility he'd go to Saudi Arabia where maybe be prosecuted. Maybe he would go into a non-prosecutorial uh, rehabilitation program. Maybe he'd be under some sort of control orders type uh, surveillance and home arrest or who knows what, and, and maybe other possibilities. And and if that's the case, then it makes it very hard to say where in the gray spectrum between Valentine and Munaf this fact pattern is. So the idea was suggested either by her or by ACLU, I'm not sure which, 
that what should happen next then is simply an order that says, before you can transfer him, uh, you got to give advance notice two or three days in advance to the court, and the court will make a quick determination at that point, where are we on that Valentine and Munoff spectrum in light of what you're now proposing to do? DOJ said, hey, no, that's interfering with diplomacy that casts too big a shadow. Um, you know, that may be the case, but this guy's a citizen, and I think that makes it different, and that should be the end of the matter. I agree. It seems perfectly reasonable to say, look, I'm not going to say you can't transfer him, but we got to have more facts, and you got to have advance notice before you do anything. That's what the judge should do here. I completely agree. And, you know, I mean, one way or the other, let's get this resolved. Right. Now, let me add one other qualifier. If the judge thinks that at the end of the day, uh, and I think this is a very plausible new category that would exist alongside Munaf, that in the relatively unique circumstance in which it's a, yes, U.S. citizen, but also a citizen of another country, and the proposal is to send that person to his other country of citizenship, and they were captured overseas in a military uh, situation anyways, I think that's a pretty confinable and reasonable category to go alongside Munaf as an exception to the Valentine rule. Um, in fact, that's kind of where I would come down on it myself. That said, I think more information makes sense here. All here, right. here. All right. Um, um, speaking of, of transfers and bans and things of the ilk. Yes. We What's have Supreme happening? Court news. Lay it on me. Uh, on Friday, the Supreme Court, grew, uh, well, <laughs> after my fun week at the Supreme Court. Yeah, um, you mean they didn't just shut it down when you left, I thought? I was actually half expecting when they, they issued it. So, Bobby, they issued opinions yesterday for only the second time this term. Okay, what is up with the slow opinions? So, um, this is a great, I learned this from our friends at First Mondays. Um, who in turn learned it from Empirical SCOTUS, Man, right? Good, good. Adam Feldman, um, who, who discovered that this was the um, first time since 1869 that the Supreme Court had not issued two or more opinions and argued cases before January, whatever Monday was, January 22nd. So there's like another printer problem, is that it? No, like here? I mean, there's clearly <laughs> something going on behind the scenes to slow things down. Interesting. But Maybe so these are just good cases. They're sinking their teeth into yeah, them. Yeah. So I was half convinced I was going to wake up yesterday to a dig. Um, oh, boy. That you explain the, what that is. So the way the oral argument went that – so a dig is a shorthand for dismiss is improvidently granted. Yeah. And when the justices have oral argument, they're like, why the heck did we take this yeah, case? I don't want to write this. You want to write this? No, let's get rid of it. Dig. Dig. Right, I was I was actually like I thought there was a non-zero chance that I would get a dig. You yesterday. did not get digged. So now I'm going to lose on the merits, which I guess is better. <laughs> well, we'll see. Maybe you'll still lose on a dig. Yeah. Uh, All right, but anyway, so in, Friday. Dig dug reference here. Indeed. Um, Friday, the Supreme Court granted cert um, in Hawaii versus Trump, the Ninth Circuit travel ban mm-hmm. case, meaning that as we've been talking about for a while, the ultimate merits of the third version of the travel ban, travel ban 3.0. Is going to be resolved by the Supreme Court this term, um, for better or for worse. Now, the the Wall Street Journal wrote an op-ed on Saturday that I thought was a bit tendentious, um, arguing that this (laughs) is this is proof that all those five that all those lower court judges have joined the resistance. There was. That the cert grant was proof? Or the, the, the fact that the Supreme Court is, you know, all these yeah. lower court judges, the Supreme Court is going to finally tell them what's up. And they're going to rule for Trump and oh, everyone will, right, right, will yeah. put yeah, those yeah. lower court okay. judges in their right. place. So the, the, the journal is is focused on something that I actually think is, when, when characterized that way, it is tendentious. But it, there's an interesting and very real underlying issue, this proliferation of national injunctions. So like, there's, you can... For those who, for that's those, only one of like the five things the journal op-ed says. Sure, no, and I'm just and I'm just picking that one okay, thing fair. as as an issue yeah, that I think fair, is a very real issue. Fair. The national injunctions issue, I think, is is becoming something that the court is not going to ignore much longer. Um, I think it's potentially problematic, but that is very different from saying that the underlying reasoning of the cases on the merits are wrong. So, travel ban will stay in the headlines for us. Do you have an early prediction for us? 
So, you know, the Ninth Circuit was basically a statutory holding. Um, one curious move is the Supreme Court, although it granted the government cert petition, it added to the cert grant whether the travel ban violates the Establishment Clause, which has never been part of the Ninth Circuit case. It's been much more part of the Fourth Circuit case. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's a really close call, Bobby. I think it's quite possible that Justice Kennedy and perhaps even Chief Justice Roberts will actually, once they really dig all the way into the merits, yeah. find a lot to like in the Ninth Circuit's narrower statutory analysis. Um, but here's the most important thing. Travel ban 3.0 doesn't look at all like travel ban 1.0. Exactly. That's that's right. It's not the same right? thing. And so, you know, it's entirely possible also that Kennedy and Roberts will say, no, you know, this may not be what I would have done if I were in charge, yeah. but this is enough. Is it fair to say that especially those justices, unlikely to sort of have a taint approach where the flaws of version 1.0 and 2.0 um, are sort of held against 3.0. It seems to me they won't. No, no. I think, I think so I think there might be justices who are inclined to look at it that way, but that the two votes that matter, Kennedy and yeah. Roberts, it's going to be straight up as if this this was how it started. Yeah. And, you know, listen. I, I, at a certain point, that needs to be how it is. That needs to be how it is. And, and frankly, if at the end of the day, the travel ban wins in the Supreme Court, right, 6 to 3 or 5 to 4, or even if, you know, they get Breyer and Kagan in it, Seven to two. Um, that's not going to prove anything about the first two travel bans. No, certainly not. I think one thing to, I really want to watch for that I think would be really important if they weigh in on it is if they talk about the uh, national security deference issues that were uh, very visible, especially in the earlier travel ban litigation, where there would be a formal representation that we have found the following risk with these countries, and then the, the lower court judge is blowing right past that and saying, yeah, you say that, but we're not, we're not buying it. Um, I would not be surprised if, if some of the justices go out of their way to shoot a uh, shot across the bow on that issue. Even I though I don't, right, think it, I don't think it, they need it for this issue. But most importantly, I, mean, I think we're looking at an April argument and a June decision. Right. So. All right. Well, speaking of travel problems, uh, as we said at the outset of the show, uh, UT through the Clement Center is hosting uh, the one and only Max Boot for a talk tomorrow. And while I was walking around, while you were waiting for me to show up to record this, and I was just walking around outside enjoying the fine weather, I was looking at my phone because, you I mean, it's a college campus and you got to walk around staring at your phone. So I did. And there I saw this tweet from Max Boot describing you just dripping with the rage that only a traveler can have. We've uh, all been there. Oh, yeah. And saying basically he went through pre-check at the airport and uh, – Got you know pulled out of line, just got you know the full business, and and when he when he started saying like you know what the heck's going on, I thought it's going to breeze through. It's pre-check. What the, what I thought the whole point of pre-check was to not go through this kind of stuff, let alone what they were doing. Pre-check or or clear. And they told him, ah, under Real ID Act, <laughs> New York licenses don't count anymore. So okay, um, what is going on, Steve? What is going on? So the Real ID Act of 2005, which usually causes headaches for me because of its various jurisdiction stripping provisions that come up all the time in immigration and Bobby extradition cases. Indeed. Aha. Um, Aha. Right. One of the actual things that it did was it created this phased in period where every state or federal agency that issues a valid photo ID has to issue IDs that satisfy certain requirements for security, Bobby, and has to include certain standardized pieces of information. Um, The short version is that the latest deadline under the Real ID Act was yesterday, Monday, January 22nd, 2018. Mm. Um, And there is this belief that there are at least some states, including New York, that are still not in complete 
compliance with the Real ID Act, um, which means that your um, non-Real ID state driver's license, if you're from one of those states, is not sufficient to use to travel or to enter a government building or anywhere else where federal law governs the appropriate forms of identification. So those folks would have to either have some other form of valid photo identification like a passport, um, or they would have to, you know, basically go through secondary screening. Here's the problem. I actually think Max may be in the right here because my understanding is that the government has been giving waivers to states to come into compliance later this year. It, I'm looking at a tweet from him from about 45 minutes ago that says, hey, the TSA website says you still accept New York State IDs through October. Right, through, so thank you, right through October, um, and that the waivers were designed for everybody, Bobby, wait for it, except residents of American Samoa and the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. Um, <laughs> what? I why just, them? Well, we, we'll talk about why those territories always get singled out for ill treatment. But I doubt Max was traveling on a CNMI driver's license. So I think what actually happened here is TSA officers missed the memo from TSA headquarters about the waiver of the January 22nd, 2018 deadline for real IDs. But man, all I can say is, this is your federal government, your tax dollars at work. Well, Max, we're glad you're coming to Austin. We are sorry you're having such a hard time. Texas, however, is in full compliance with the Real ID Act. And we've got margaritas and barbecue and Tex-Mex and all kinds of good stuff to ease your pain once you're here. So speaking of the federal government being here to help, Bobby, we... Yeah, sometimes it's not here. Sometimes it's not here. And, and I was going to say that I woke up yesterday morning thinking how different it was to live somewhere where you don't physically see and feel the effects of a government shutdown. Because the last three government shutdowns... Oh, yeah, you lived through them. I lived through them. And I loved them, not politically, because traffic was amazing. You're like, snow day. Oh, my God. It was snow day without the snow, right? right and I could get to work in like 15 minutes. Well, at least we can give you sunny, warm winter day. Listen, I'm not complaining about the Austin weather. Um, <laughs> but I will say just really quickly, and I think this is probably our last topic for our, our one-year anniversary tier. Um <laughs> There are interesting points to make about the Anti-Deficiency Act. So the president has been on a Twitter roll that the Democrats, because after all, it's all their fault, um, are, just don't want to fund the military. It's worth stressing, right? It is true that during a government shutdown, normal military pay is suspended. But the way the Anti-Deficiency Act works, it's not like folks won't get paid back pay if they were actually working during the shutdown. Right? The Anti-Deficiency Act just says you can't get paid during the shutdown. Now, there are certainly folks who live paycheck to paycheck for whom that's a really big deal. But it's just not true that the tens of thousands of men and women both in and out of uniform in vital, what are called exempt, right, government jobs, whether in the national security sector or otherwise, you know, don't get paid at all. So is this fair to summarize it that for, for non-essential workers, or is it just the military that gets this? No, it's, it's all. It's all. all. Okay, so so people who are in this sort of the bulk category, do they get the same benefit? Furloughed employees don't get paid. Right. That's so so a lot pay. of federal workers. Sucks for them. Yeah, like the National worst, Park Service, worst part of Worst part of a shutdown. Yeah, absolutely. No question. But then for everyone else, it still sucks because, like you said, if it goes on across your mortgage payment, tell it to the bank when you don't make your mortgage no payment. No doubt. But, I mean, but, you know, 
color me as someone who thinks there's a meaningful distinction between you're going to get paid back pay in three weeks for all this time you worked this week sure. versus the president tweeting, he has, we're, we don't want to pay all those people standing on the front lines. Right, right. No, clearly, if you're, if you're claiming you don't get paid, you do get paid. But it still sucks because you're not going to get paid until the government comes Listen, back I'm, online. This is not me defending government shutdowns. This is me saying that the Anti-Deficiency Act is actually a little more complicated than yeah, the yeah. president might understand. No, no question about it. And one last point about the Anti-Deficiency Act, thanks to lawfare Sabrina McCubbin, right, which I think this is a really important point. Um, the special counsel is not paid out of an annual appropriation um, and therefore is not covered ah. by the Anti-Deficiency Act or by the failure of both Houses of Congress and the president to agree to a continuing resolution. So he just keeps on keeping on. He just keeps on keeping on under the terms of, I think it's the 1988 Special Justice Department Appropriations Act. That's awesome. Well, so, here, get, come up with an acronym for that one. Here's here's a related one. The, the Mueller the, Money Statute. The, the MMA. Wait, wait till the MMS. Ha- wait till Hannity finds out that, you know, the shutdown's good for Mueller. <laughs> Well, I know he listens, so um, <laughs> would that be great? On, on the list of people who don't listen to our podcast, Whatever. Hannity, Hannity is number two. He is on the rowing machine right now in, in drawing energy from his frustration with all the things we say. We're helping him work out. Yeah, no. Well, I know I know he, Bill he, Banks he is not, on the treadmill. At all least. right, Bill Banks is, but Bill Banks doesn't hate listening to our podcast. Well, I, you know, I assume not. <laughs> although, although we infuriated him, I noted, by our review of all-time great sitcoms by showing our ageism. Yeah. We didn't pick up much on 70s uh, or prior. How, how dare us? We omitted, you know, I heard from more than a few people. Where is all, <laughs> where is all in the family? Yes, those were the days. Um, I love Lucy. Hey, there, there are some old chestnuts out there, no question. Old chestnuts, drink. Um, but one thing I did promise to mention earlier that I want to close with is uh, something that got snuck into the bill that reopened the government. Ah, speaking of anti-deficiency. Yeah, so there, there's there's basically a, a little provision that supposedly the uh, OMB at the last minute asked House appropriators to slip in or the leadership slipped in. I don't know how it worked. But it turned off Section 504 of the National Security Act, which might leave you thinking, what the heck does that mean? What's I'm the sure everyone has that right at their fingertips. Right. Uh, it, it boils down to this. With intelligence appropriations, there's there's a challenge in terms of being very specific about what money is being appropriated for what purpose. Generally speaking, and I know I'm glossing over lots of complexities here, but generally speaking, the way the way they work this sort of stuff is to appropriate sort of large top level sums for these intelligence programs. How then do you ensure that the, the executive branch spends that money in a particular programmatic way that Congress wants? Well, the traditional way has been for the authorizing entities, uh, the, the intelligence committees in the House and Senate, they have the specifics. And then the, through the magic of Section 504 of the National Security Act, the money that's appropriated must be spent in accordance with how it was authorized. And that all, you know, that, that's all well and good. The idea is that this was kind of quietly turned off, leading people to say, oh, my God, just like snap of the fingers. Suddenly there's great lever- or opportunity for reprogramming of funds, at least for the uh, the couple of weeks. The three weeks. Yeah. but like Until the DACA deal falls Yeah, but apart. who knows what kind of money might get moved around in the meantime. Yeah. And uh, the Intel Committee's leaderships, uh, bipartisan fashion, of course, are unhappy and are working to get this undone. Um, so, but, but how do you? Un- I mean, how do you undo it without passing another bill that exactly. the president has to sign? I, I don't see how they can. Um, 
I'm not real sure. Uh, yeah, let me ask you a question. I don't know. Has Trump actually signed the reopening yes. bill? Yeah, he signed it yesterday. Yeah, afternoon. so uh, so it's just going to have to be avoided the next go around. Yeah, I mean, but and then I mean, <laughs> so back to a point I've tried to make before about how hey, maybe stick, st- sticking the stuff into you know must pass appropriations bills not necessarily the most responsible way to do this kind of policy reform. There's not much about how we're running the trains that makes sense. Um, all right. That Speaking sounds like of the metro. things on time. <laughs> Wait, if we stop in the next 90 seconds, we'll be under an hour. <laughs> okay, so, say the, so say, let's fill. Say the bit. Uh, I'm Steve Vladek at Steve underscore Vladek on Twitter. I'm Bobby Chesney at Bobby Chesney, no underscore, at Bobby Chesney on Twitter. He's also Ben Solo. I'm Kylo Ren um, at NSL Podcast. I don't know if I love this. Let's tap dance a little bit running up to an hour. Um, you know, if you could be identified with any one character from the new series, uh, New sequence, what would it be? Would it be uh, Kylo Ren? No. Who would it be? Or does that require more thought, more time? <sighs> Can I say BB-8 and just call <laughs> yeah. it a day? I like that. I like um, that. I, I'll be BB-8. I'll be the cute little round round poly, poly droid. There you go. Shooting shooting gold coins look a lot like Krugerans. Exactly. People. All right. Who are you? Oh, I don't know. I'll stick with Ben Solo. After all that? <laughs> yeah. Well, now that we've come full circle, friends, um, thanks for being with us for our first year. We appreciate you. We really do. Please reach out to us and let us know you're out there. And, you know, stick around for year number two. Stay safe out there. Adios.